Are you looking to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? Fortunately, there's an easy solution from the podcast sponsor, Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians. I've made it easy to check out Medici with a link in the show notes, or you can head over to their website, medici.md, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app. Send or receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid, which is always a wonderful thing, for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Ready to go virtual? Visit Medici.md, that's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. And with that, here's the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Simon Starkey, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, MBA, PhD, BVSC, and DAPVP. Dr. Starkey, that's a mouthful, but thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Isaiah. Real pleasure to be here and a long-time listener, first-time caller. So of the, the three that I'm more familiar with, DVM, MBA, PhD, which has been your favorite and why? So that's a good question. Um, I actually probably really enjoyed the MBA more than I expected. Uh, my other degrees were all uh, in established bricks-and-mortar institutions, uh, Cornell University, University of Sydney, did the online MBA through the University of Illinois. It's a pretty progressive, quite a new program, uh, 100% online, quite cost-effective, so only about 22000 all-in. And what that's allowed them to get a pool of really top-quality students in there. They're very selective, about one in four or less candidates chosen, and uh, average age of about 37. A lot of mid-career folks, we had uh, multiple army officers, uh, physicians, veterinarians, a lot of engineers, and uh, really learned a lot about teamwork. Uh, it was heavily team-oriented, as most MBAs are, but that was had an added element of challenge being in different time zones, different countries. It was all done through Zoom online, and uh, you know, probably 50 to 60% of our grades were based on that teamwork. So, you know, great experience, a lot of, a lot of interesting folks I met from diverse careers, so good to branch out of uh, veterinary medicine for a little bit. So we met actually through LinkedIn and you had shared a, a blog post talking about sick leave and staff management. Can you share kind of why you wrote it, why you think it matters and the impact that you're seeing? Yeah, it's a, a great idea. I've been a long time proponent of treating uh, associates and staff well. Uh, there's a school of thought going back to the late 90s called the uh, service profit chain Really, I think uh, a must-read body of work, both a book, a Harvard Business Review article for all managers and really associates in, in veterinary medicine and service industries in general. And this work's been followed on in, in later years. Um, there's been uh, portfolios, stock portfolios that have been built from, say, Fortune uh, top 100 companies to work for, Glassdoor, the um, employee review site where employees review employees has also has a team of economists and created portfolios with their most highly ranked companies. And not surprisingly, these firms go on to outperform the S&P 500 and other indices. And the general premise is if you treat your people well, they'll treat your customers well. If you treat your customers well, 
they're going to be valuable and uh, profitable customers and loyal customers. So you're going to grow referrals. You're going to get good uh, online reviews. So when I thought about sick leave is uh, that's the, the main premise. That's where my sort of heart is. But also the pragmatist in me, I was wrapping up my MBA, realized that in businesses like veterinary medicine, dentistry, small legal offices, significant amounts of revenue, 80, 90 percent come from relatively small number of individuals, whether that's one, two, three or five DVMs in most practices. And if those folks are sickened by their co-workers, you can see a significant reduction in, in production, both for those individuals who are compensated on production, but also for the business as a whole. And what I wrote in the article, you may even lose clients permanently, especially if this is a common occurrence. So it's, it's something I'm passionate about, treating people well. I think it, it pays for itself. Plenty of studies showing that employee turnover often costs 40% of an annual salary, even in entry-level work, say, at Walmart. And that's sort of you know, mostly tangible costs, and they're, they're intangible costs too. So, um, yeah, check that out. It's on my LinkedIn uh, profile and, and something I thought was uh, interesting for the profession to consider. Absolutely. It's uh, well-written, good research from, from the article, and I'll make sure I link to it in the show notes as well. Appreciate it. Thank you. One thing from our conversation. So we've had a couple different phone calls just connected actually through that article I shared it because I thought it was really good. It's just how curious you are. And again, we go back to the introduction and the various degrees and, and things that you've accomplished. It definitely shows from education and life experiences. Can you share really where you're at today and kind of that journey, how you got here? Obviously, you talked about you know Sydney being one of the, the spots. Your accent kind of gives it away that you know you were born and, and raised in Australia. Can you just kind of give uh, listeners that kind of life journey and how you got to where you're at and why you know veterinary medicine? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's an interesting story. I'll try and keep it brief. I know folks can get uh, <laughs> story notes and, and my my profile if they're interested, but. Uh, you know, like many of us, I was influenced by the stories of, of James Herriot. For me, that would be the late 80s and, and early 90s. And, um, you know, had a strong interest in science, like like many veterinarians. So for me, it was a thirst for knowledge and an interest in, in solving problems. And uh, I gravitated to, to medicine and to veterinary medicine. You know, great, great college there, University of Sydney. It uh, is an undergraduate program. I was able to get in straight from high school. Uh, so that you know got me off to a good start, and then I uh, spent a summer at Cornell. So uh, they have a, a program for aspiring uh, veterinary researchers, and uh, kind of got the bug there. And so finished my program in Sydney in 2001. Went to Cornell, did a PhD uh, in epidemiology, so sort of population medicine and statistics, and that just sort of furthered my you know inquiring mind and, and problem solving. But I had a hankering to practice, so I was fortunate enough to get a residency at Cornell in avian and exotic medicine. I completed that and was board certified in avian medicine. I worked in Manhattan for a couple of years in just avian and exotic medicine, uh, straight out to the burbs in Queens and Long Island and, and did mostly cat and dog medicine for a while. Uh, a stint of lab animal medicine before I found myself at PetSmart's corporate office. And uh, that was a fascinating role. It really brought all of my training together. Uh, ultimately was in charge of about 130,000 pets in the 1,400 stores across the U.S. and Canada. So uh, I pulled together the statistics, the population medicine for the PhD, as well as the, uh, the veterinary degree and the residency. At that time, really got an interest in business and realized I didn't know 
a whole lot about it despite having a, an interest in it. So uh, I was fortunate to get admitted to that uh, new program, the IMBA through the University of Illinois. I uh, have completed that and, and since left PetSmart, returned to uh, full-time private practice, uh, predominantly cat and dog medicine, doing a little bit of my avian practice on the side. And um, just, you know, have an interest now in uh, cultivating thoughts about, about management in veterinary medicine, particularly from the front lines, from the trenches, as it were, as you mentioned my article on sick leave, thinking also about operations, day-to-day operations, and you know, enjoying enjoying where I'm at, looking uh, looking towards the next step as well. Yeah, and we're going to dive into kind of the operations management side because that's been a lot of our our dialogue in previous phone calls and conversations that has intrigued me a lot. And in our discussions, you've mentioned a, a colleague that you're fairly close with that's tried to incentivize his assistance by adding some production based compensation, which is a little unique. Can you share what he's done and how you've seen it, and maybe what he shared, and why don't you think maybe more clinicians and, and folks in veterinary medicine do that. Yes, uh, I'm glad you raised that. So it's a good friend of mine, got a, a great operation out in Rhode Island. And uh, basically we were spitballing one day and uh, so I mentioned this idea to him. said, hey, you know, you progressive guy, got a great practice. Uh, why don't we think about, um, you know, have you thought about incentivizing your assistants and or technicians? You know, we know doctors have been paid that way for better part of two decades, maybe more in this country. And, uh, and it seems to work well. What, what struck me, uh, what I've seen in the front lines is, you know, veterinary medicine is, is uneven. You know, I, I enjoyed my operations management course in the MBA, and they talk about wherever possible leveling the workload. Certainly factories do that, production lines. It can't be, always be done. You know, McDonald's is going to be crazy busy at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and quiet in between. Veterinary medicine doesn't have that predictable chaos to it, unfortunately. There are some days you know you're going to be busy, probably Monday morning, Friday night, Saturday, um, but, it, but it's unpredictable and it, it can be very, very hard work at times. We've got a lot of great people in the industry. You know, the operation wouldn't happen without our frontline people. And I think most vets realize that, but sometimes it gets lost on us. Uh, my brother, who's a, a banker in Singapore, many years ago pointed out to me the importance of, of people in all lines of work. And, and so I've tried to embody that in, in my life and respect people at all levels. And so what I've noticed is that there are days where you are really busting your chops. You know, you may end up earning 50%, 100% more than your usual production. And uh, this gentleman and I thought, you know, on those days, your associates are getting paid hourly and they are pitching in there, making those days work. If you'd not come up with a structure to help them out and, you know, give them a little reward for an extra hard day. Now, of course, you could increase base pay, but I think a lot of studies have shown that uh, rewards soon after a, a positive uh, interaction or activity or, or productive day is going to be more beneficial. And not always financial rewards, but uh, I sort of felt that uh, this was a, an interesting idea and it, I understand, uh, seems to be working very well. Uh, keeping folks engaged, you know, and they understand on the quieter days, well, getting the negotiated salary, that's fine, and, and maybe enjoy those quieter days. But if I'm really, you know, sweating bullets all day one day, I know there'll be a little extra something for me, and uh, and I think that's good. And, you know, I think something that the industry perhaps should consider, um, you know, on the whole. And, and uh, another idea along these lines I've had is that, Perhaps it's time for a balanced scorecard. You may be familiar from your business school days. 
that's been introduced in, in a lot of Fortune 500 companies with the idea that if executives were bonus strictly on stock performance, they could be very short-sighted. So the balanced scorecard intended to allow folks to look more broadly at a company and to be more strategic. For what that means for a veterinary practice, in my opinion, would be considering uh, bonuses for high-star reviews on uh, on Google or Yelp, etc. Teamwork that's acknowledged by peers or observed by management. Taking care of equipment, you know, that's that's capital stock that you want to keep in good shape. And so, you know, coming up with a more comprehensive and rounded approach to employee compensation at all levels. Receptionists, for example, future booking could be compensated, um, you know, flea and tick sales at the counter. So uh, lots of lots of ideas there for the industry. I love it. And that's just the creativity, but also bringing in the different lines of education that you've had to, to think through and see that and have conversations with peers that are also not just doing things the same way they've always done it, but think about how they can continue to improve and get better. So much of, of what you've done and you shared in some of the, the history of you know how you got to where you're at today, you've done a lot of analytical research and studying on you know optimal appointment amounts per day a clinic can see. Can you talk about this and then the relationship to the average transaction cost and what that looks like? There was some interesting information that you shared that I want to make sure that we kind of dive into. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, so as you mentioned, I, I enjoy solving problems. I enjoy using uh, sort of stitching together my various training and education and experience. So a lot of that relies heavily on the stats learned in my PhD and, and brushed up in my MBA. And, uh, you know, there's a trove of, of knowledge out there of data. You know, I don't have access to, to all of it. I currently work at a VCA. I'm able to kick the tires a little bit on my own clinics data or our clinics data. But uh, at a corporate level, even for mid-sized chains, I think there is a wealth of data out there. And yes, we touched on the idea that I believe, you know, a friend of mine at, when I worked at PetSmart spoke about the fast nickel or the slow dime. Uh, basically talking there in reference to a Walmart model or a Nordstrom's model. And I often think about this in veterinary medicine. We try to be all things to all people at all times, and that's simply not practical and it's not wise. I think there needs to be greater consumer segmentation. We're seeing a little bit of that with modern animal these days, with uh, poor plus heart, uh, and certainly some private groups and and obviously specialty uh, and emergency clinics. I think general practices, you know, uh, are stuck in the middle, to uh, to quote a famous business phrase. They, they're getting uh, challenges from the low end with vaccine clinics and uh, the Walmart model that will be growing in the near future, and on the high end from specialty models and increasingly from high-touch general practices. So uh, where, where I came to think about this is uh, I was fortunate enough that the management team at, at my clinic went from a model of 20-minute uh, wellness appointments and 40-minute six, which 40 is quite generous. Uh, however, what we found is that a lot of those 20s were included sick or older patients that really needed more time and attention. So we made the decision to go to 30 minutes across the board. And I noticed a, down to 10 to 15% jump in my average transaction. Now, sure, there will be some appointments where, you know, you're done in 10 to 15 minutes. Now, depending on the flow of the day, I'm going to use that time to build rapport with the client to make sure I've done a thorough exam. I'm not missing anything. Let's say it's a flu booster shot. I'm still going to use the time on the clock, maybe not the full 30 minutes, but engage that client, build rapport, 
build loyalty, and uh, you know maybe look at some lapsed preventative care and uh, discuss other matters. So I think there's an interesting function, most likely a N-shaped curve of uh, average transaction for appointment time. I see it. I think most of the practicing vets out there would see it. You get busy if you're at a 15 or 20-minute appointment slot, just bang, bang, bang. First thing that's going to go is probably going to be those uh, senior wellness blood panels. You just do not have time to discuss it and do it. Uh, You're then going to find that uh, perhaps you're going to try a round of antibiotics before diagnostics because you're just not sure how you're going to fit in some more diagnostics today. And I think we talk a lot, it's not my area of expertise, but a lot of stress and fatigue and, and sadly suicide in the profession. And, and I think some of that is due to this high volume, but extremely high expectations. You know, we are expected to do a comprehensive physical exam, and I think we're, I'm proud of it compared to what I receive from most physicians. But to do that well in 15 to 20 minutes, as many clinicians are asked to do, to not miss anything, to be extremely thorough, uh, it really puts a huge pressure. Because you see most physicians, you'll be lucky to have them listen to your chest with a stethoscope and, and a blood pressure. Uh, we're doing a comprehensive physical, looking for really all organ systems, and uh, you know you can be in significant trouble uh, if you miss something. And so, you know, I think there will be suburbs and areas where this model of uh, dedicating more time it can be tested too. And large corporations, for example, randomly assign appointment time to different areas, and and then. You could use a multiple linear regression model to analyze how how different the revenue is over time uh, in these randomized clinics. I think it varies on the clinician as well. So I'm a high-touch kind of guy. I I like to build rapport with clients. Uh, I'm going to use that time and use it wisely. Some folks are more of that fast nickel. And look, there's a place for it. People want it. Uh, We see that with Tractor Supply. We see that with Vetco. Uh, I think we're going to see it with Walmart. I think we'll see it to a certain extent with Thrive. There's a strong demand for low-cost veterinary care, but you cannot deliver it in a large amount of time uh, at a profitable level. So I think know your market, know your staff, and adjust accordingly. Even within a clinic, you may, in fact, we do. We have one doctor alternating 15 and 30-minute appointments. She's extremely efficient, extremely good, and we have most of us doing 30 minutes. So uh, I would love to kick the tires on on a bigger data set. And uh, even using retrospective data, I think the answers will be there. But uh, prospective uh, cohort would be also interesting to look at. It's fascinating. And just the conversation around, and I think about niches and just trying to be you know, intelligent about how you serve and who you serve. And that's obviously a big part of how I've designed my business. But also, as you touched and shared on a lot of different pieces there, it made me think of uh, an interview that I did on this podcast with Dr. Shay Cox, episode 12, if you want to reference it, talking about euthanasia and she's seeing, you know, the demand. She has three hour appointments. She charges accordingly for those and she has demand. Now she's in the Bay Area, so it's a little different as far as what people can afford and, and all of that. So she knows her market and has designed a service that makes sense and is very profitable and fits for what she wants to do. So it's really unique to hear stories that it doesn't have to be the same way that maybe the practice operated five years ago. Like you can look at shifting and adjusting and making sure that you're, yeah, you have to utilize data. You have to analyze and see, you know, what's the, what are the trends? Are you profitable? All these different things, but you can certainly shift the way that you have that standard of care. And as you mentioned, there's going to be a need for all kinds of kinds. You don't have to do it the same way as the 
the clinic up the street or the hospital, you know, down the road, do what you need to do that gives some satisfaction and, and makes you feel good about the standard of care that you deliver. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, just frontline and the failure to maybe listen or treat them the same way. What do you think's missing in that opportunity of people taking more time to listen to the, the frontline staff? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I think there's so much to be learned from frontline staff. This is something I think I've always gravitated towards, but particularly at my time at PetSmart, there are 40,000 associates in the field. These people, we wouldn't be in business without them. And they have a lot to, to tell us, you know, I, I believe, you know, there's a, a problem of uh, diseconomies of scale. I think most of us are familiar with economies of scale, bigger companies getting better uh, costs, for example, on their drugs, and, and certainly there's no doubt about that. Uh, there's a challenge, though, with diseconomies of scale, and this is why the company isn't, the world is not one big company, and we saw that with the communist bloc, it did not work because of inefficiencies. Uh, AT&T's president at uh, the turn of the century, turn of the last century, was known to say if we got a kick in the rear, it would take management about a year to find out about it. Now, things have changed. Uh, you know, uh, he'd, he'd be amazed at what his AT&T does today. But uh, still, there is a, a lag and a delay. And I think that's part of it. So challenges of communication. But, but sometimes this can occur even at the individual privately owned or even corporate owned level. And I find it somewhat interesting because most managers, in fact, were frontline employees themselves. The vast majority of technicians that have been promoted up, others that may have had other roles such as uh, receptionist, reception supervisor, etc. And uh, what I got at PetSmart, we had a, a all hands uh, corporate office meeting one time, and we had the, the privilege of listening to uh, James Surowiecki, who was a uh, economics journalist who's written a book called The Wisdom of the Crowd. Uh, absolutely fascinating book. It's often referenced in, in uh, other economics and business books. The basic premise is that, you know, it's it's the law of averages. The more people you question, the better they're going to know. And a, a story that's often told from that book is at a county fair in England, folks were asked to guess the the uh, dressed weight, that is the butchered weight of a, of a cow or ox. And the average of the crowd was within two or three pounds of the dressed weight of this animal. And yes, I'm sure there were some experts in the field who were extremely close, but everybody's average. And this is seen in elementary school when kids count the number of marbles in a jar. Now, it's not just averages. When we talk about frontline stuff, they actually have a better feeling of what's going on. And so do not capture that one way or another. And that's why when I first heard about Glassdoor.com, for example, I was gravitated to it and considered some of my own stock investments based off, they have a, a trailing average of how associates rate the company as a whole, how they rate leadership, how they rate the CEO. And uh, and as I mentioned previously, there, there are proven links between these factors and future success of a business. Now, at a smaller veterinary practice level, I think the same thing holds true. What are your receptionists hearing and seeing from clients? Are, are they upset by wait times? Are they upset with cats and dogs co-mingling up front? Uh, your assistants hearing things in the rooms that are not being relayed back to you? Uh, and and a, is there a, a disquiet among the staff that's not being re relayed to you? So uh, a couple of things that's been instituted at uh, the clinic where I'm at, which I think was were excellent ideas on, on management's behalf, was a so-called chuck-it-in-the-bucket box, a secure lockbox where people could drop in written or typed notes uh, with concerns or complaints. 
And then at the monthly staff meeting, a kind of pulse of the people where you would put a zero to 10 score on a card and they would simply average this out and keep track of it for themselves. Zero being I'm leaving tomorrow and 10 being I'm going to retire at this place. So, you know, so certainly we're seeing it. We're seeing signs of it. I think it perhaps could be more uh, formalized and executed more broadly within the industry. Taking information in from those that you interact with or have on the team is really, really important to A, make sure that they still feel empowered to have their voice heard because there's nothing worse than showing up to a job and feeling like the work you do doesn't matter or no one's listening to you. And then that will certainly erode the confidence of the, the clients and patients coming in the door if that's the, the treatment that you're going to be providing. You've talked about client behaviors, treatment acceptance, and having a, a high level uh, standard of care. Where do you see you know the industry failing to better serve patients and clients? And I know we talked about that a little bit of trying to differentiate service models from real quick to longer, you know, times in the the office together. Can you expand on that? Is there anything you want to add there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great line of, uh, of questioning and a, a good topic. So, you know, I think this is another area we touched on earlier about associates and, and veterans in general burning out, uh, wanting to offer high levels of care, sometimes not having the time to do it, sometimes not having the, the toolkit, as it were, to do it. So, uh, you know, I'm in my early 40s now. I've been doing this for a while. There aren't many, I've discovered, happy 40-plus-year-old, especially associate veterinarians. Many have left, uh, and, and those that remain, many are quite unhappy. A good friend of mine, Dr. Brian Ashmore, who, uh, who was a mentor of mine in Arizona, a little older than me, a few years, but um, credibly happy, energetic, vibrant clinician. He was the managing veterinarian where I worked in Arizona after leaving PetSmart. And I wanted to learn what's the secret to success. How could I be like him? And how could I continue to be happy in this career I've spent so long to be in? Uh, his main secret, I think, was offering high levels of care. And over time, admittedly 10 to 15 years in the same clinic, building a clientele where on any given day, 80 plus percent of his appointments were so-called Ashmore specific appointments. These were people who wanted to see him, who knew him, and uh, who, with whom he had a great rapport. And what this meant is when it came time for a, you know, a big treatment plan, they were on board because they knew him and he knew them and maybe on their second or third pet. So I've channeled this. Uh, and another thing that I've discovered, uh, moving from Arizona to central New York, we've got a lot of Lyme disease here. It's one more vaccine, and sometimes you feel like a used car salesman pitching that Lyme vaccine. But oddly enough, the real eye-opener me came uh, you know, six, eight months into my practice here. I had two or three clients quite upset at me because nobody in the past had apparently offered them the Lyme vaccine. Now, they may have been offered once and forgot, but I, it struck a chord with me is that here is a client who is unhappy because we didn't, quote, try and sell them something. And that really struck me. And I think you've mentioned this, or you put a post in LinkedIn recently about, you know, selling is hard, but selling what you believe in is, is not. And so, you know, it, you'd be hard-pressed not to believe in Lyme in this part of the world and, and the problems. And you'd be hard-pressed not to believe in the efficacy of that vaccine. Putting those two together, every client I see who does not have that vaccine for their dog, I have the discussion. Now, I don't want to badger them. So I will say, hey, you know, we've had this discussion now. Would you like me to decline it so we don't ask you in future? Or would you like to have it today or give it some more thought? 
So this was a real eye-opener, and, and this, uh, for me, was in conjunction with, I always read the uh, PLIT, the Liability Claims flyer that comes out quarterly, I believe, from the AVMA. It's a bit morbid reading, perhaps, but learning how and why veterinarians have got in trouble with state boards and, and private litigation. And one that struck me was a gentleman was um, called between the, the board and, and sued because he did not offer an ultrasound to a dog that ultimately had intestinal lymphoma. Now, look, we don't want to practice highly defensive medicine, and we never want to do anything we shouldn't do. But I think who are we to judge what clients will and won't do, will and won't spend? We've all seen it all, folks mortgaging or selling a home to pay for their pet or at least a car, missing payments, etc. cetera. Uh, but I find myself even to this day judging and, and trying very hard not to. Say, this is what this pet needs. Here is a complete treatment plan. Now, I will often have an, a skilled assistant or a technician present it to get me out of that. So I'm not judging them. I'm not. It's also easy for vets to take things off the treatment plan. The assistants and techs have been instructed not to. They're, they're not clinicians. They are not to take things off. The client is if they are not able to do it. And so I'm quite passionate about this because I think it could improve care. It could greatly improve average transactions. And more importantly, I think it could improve the quality of life for veterinarians. We, we hear more and more on my LinkedIn feed of, of depression, of anxiety, and heaven forbid, suicide. And it is in part due to pressure and the inability to provide high levels of care. Not everybody client wants or needs this, and that's understandable, but don't judge for them. Uh, I see uh, colleagues and former colleagues offering cheaper blood panels only the very next day to say, oh, wish I had the urinalysis, wish I had the thyroid. If it's appropriate, offer the full panel, and if the client can't do it, work with them and explain why. So you can tell I'm, I'm really passionate about this, and, and I think those eye-openers work for me. I was fortunate to have clients complain about not being offered a service and reading that article about somebody being sued for not offering a service. I think the former is more insightful than the latter, but I think they're important lessons. Couldn't agree more in the conversation. Again, I'm referencing back a previous podcast, which is fun as we're having these conversations that you know things are, are being covered, but just trying to explain and say this is what I believe if this was my pet, this is how I would take care of them and, you know, lay out what that's going to be, but then show them the way that they can afford structure payment plan. Tony Ferraro was on the podcast earlier, kind of meeting clients where they are financially. There's third party payment options. Some people are going to absolutely say, no, I don't want it. I can't afford it. And that's okay. And I know that being told no over and over again, regardless of whether you're a veterinarian <laughs> or financial advisor or, um, you know, a salesman somewhere, like anything, hearing no as a human sucks. We don't like that. We want everyone to say, yes, you know, we want to do that. We're so appreciative of you. But just because one person said no, or multiple people have said no, and the last four times you've presented something doesn't mean you just stop because exactly to your point, there's going to be others that absolutely want that and are going to appreciate you taking the time to outline what's really needed. And then you have to work with them and, and figure it out, but present options, show them the way that they can take the best care of their pets, because ultimately that's what they want. That's what everyone wants. They want to take care of their pets, right? That's why they brought them to you. That's why they seek expert advice. So, you know, show them the way and, and let them make the decision. That's right. And I think this does get a bit to client segmentation. You know, it's done, I mean, constantly in marketing and in, in larger corporations, 
you know, they know who they want. And, and of course, now with digital media, social media, they're able to target extremely precisely. We tend not to do that in veterinary medicine. And I think that causes some challenges and some inefficiencies. You know, I, it sounds difficult. And I think you, you know, you've I've seen a number of your posts alluding to this, you know, talking about money, the difficulty of it, the challenges. It's true. Most vets in particular, I think more than just about any profession got into it for a love of of animals and to a large extent people. I mean, it may have come to them later in life to realize that the pets don't come in with their own credit cards, but, you know, but it's challenging. And, and I think over time, though, that's I mentioned my colleague, Dr. Ashmore, building this rapport, building this clientele. Yeah, it was an interesting suburb, quite reasonably affluent part of out of Phoenix, but surrounded by some quite uh, challenging working class neighborhoods. We had clients from both. And over time, they would self-select and self-segment. If they did not really want to work with our model, there were other options. And that's the nature of life. You know, I shop in a Subaru dealership, not a Lexus dealership. That's, that's the way it is. And I think, you know, we could offer better service at all levels. I mean, this has been done for decades with uh, low-cost spay and neuter clinics. And, uh, you know, and we're seeing it more and more with low-cost shot clinics. Now, I think, you know, everybody who wants it deserves quality care, but there are, it has to be delivered in a variety of ways. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to probably see more. Well, we are seeing more and more of that. And uh, it's interesting we're seeing more of it on the low end than the high end, but we are starting to see it creep in with, uh, um, as I said, modern animal and poor plus hard appear to be the leaders at the moment in that side of the industry. Yeah, that made me think of a conversation. So I, I work out of the co-working space, had a conversation with someone that knows what I do. And I've had conversations with him. He runs an IT company and actually does work some with it with veterinarians. And that's kind of a, a niche that they've built out. And he was talking to someone else. They're like, oh, you know, this vet bill is just so high. And he turned to me. He's like, why do veterinarians charge so much? And what I went back to him with is, you know, hey, let's talk about, you know, the, the standard of care and, and do you want your pet to get the best level of care? And so we had a further dialogue around that. And by the end, they're like, eh, you know, that makes sense. But they just wanted to complain because it seemed like a lot of money. Well, maybe they didn't understand the costs involved with that. And from a purely business standpoint, if I'm a veterinarian and I don't charge what I need to charge to keep my business running, you're doing a service to no one. If you're not in business any longer, you're not taking care of any pets. So if you can't run your business That's effectively right. and be profitable and then pay your staff a fair wage so that they can have a life, same with you to you know cover bills and make sure that you're able to you know live the life that you know you don't have to have a, you know a Scrooge McDuck pool of gold coins to be successful. Like that's not <laughs> that's not ever been you know my way of defining what success or, or money or any of that stuff looks like. It's just you have to have a business that can thrive so you can make sure you spend the time and take care of you know, clients and patients the right way. And you have to charge appropriately for that time. Don't, don't give it away for free. Cause then people are going to be expecting freebies all the time. And that just sets a bad standard. So just be very cognizant around the way that you interact and people should understand that you went and spent a lot of time to get the education and knowledge that you do have. And they want your opinion and advice. And there's a lot of people out there that want it. There's going to be certain ones that are always going to be, you know, pains in the butt. And we all run into those people. It's all right. They're not going to be your ideal customer. That's okay. It's fine. There's other options. That's right. And, and some of those may self-select out. And sometimes I've wondered, I have yet to do this, but about guiding them to other services, you know, heaven forbid, you know, it's probably not going to happen. Perhaps, you know, but to say, you know, we may not be the right fit for you. 
you know, I think that's a, something I think for individual clinicians and their management to think about. You know, most businesses for 30 or 40 years have had vision and mission statements. And sometimes I remember before business school, it felt a bit corny seeing them in mom and pop businesses. But, uh, you know, I actually think every clinic should have its own vision and mission statement and should try and adhere to it. What what do we want to be? What are we? And yes, you know, we're not going to, if somebody's in the door, we're going to treat them with the utmost respect and to the best of our ability. But, and maybe we don't directly say this is not the right place for you, but stick to your morals, stick to your vision and mission. And those folks, if it seems wrong to them, they should move on. And, and again, this is something that is discussed in that body of work I mentioned at the start called the service profit chain. Uh, I think absolutely fascinating read and one that you could probably start a consulting career based just off that book in veterinary medicine. I mean, it is so relevant some 20 years later. Uh, it was not intended. In fact, they don't mention veterinary medicine. They do mention a little bit of human health care, but it's really about service industries in general. And uh, so I think there's, there's a lot of... Uh, exciting times ahead of us, but uh, plenty of challenges as well. You talked about like a vision and mission and kind of having that culture. And this is interesting. I don't, I've never met this person um, in person, but I connected with him on Twitter and just follow him. And he has a lot of good information and he's actually a dentist. And he kind of had a tweet that said, I give every new patient a letter about me and his dental practice talking about integrity, compassion, and excellence, a paper about cavities and how to prevent them. So obviously you could design that with ever you know, within veterinary medicine for the standard of care that you have, uh, paper on fluoride. So again, maybe it's, hey, this is why Lyme is really important in this area and why we treat it and why we talk about it. A paper on TMJ dysfunction, which is kind of just a jaw. So again, talking about different areas of, you know, trouble that he's seen with his patients and it's all made and, and written up by him. So he's the owner, he writes it and he goes, if one patient reads and changes their habits, it's worth me giving it to everyone. So I think that's a, an interesting idea, again, to facilitate and build out that culture. It shouldn't, I mean, you could, you could knock that out in a couple weekends of thinking through it and it can be very simple as far as what you give. And it doesn't have to be printed out and spend a lot of money on it. It could just be, you get the email from that new patient and you send it and say, Hey, this is kind of the things that we do. These are the things that are important and, and just give them, you know, an email this week and an email another week and slowly just show them we care about education and care about taking care of you and your pets the best way that we can. Simple. And would be a great, you know, new retention tool, I think, for someone that came into your clinic, as long as it aligns with what you actually are doing. That's the hard part. Writing it and doing it's easy, but are you following through with actually living up to that standard of care that you want to be set and, and make sure that the team's on board? And I think what you said, his philosophy about if a single client, that's, that's great in, in, in a world where I'm sure they receive plenty of no's as well. Uh, you know, having that mindset, you know, try and stick to your moral compass. If, if you believe in it, Yes, it's hard to hear no. Don't, you know, sort of berate people. Have the discussion once, document it, and move on. But have the discussion. You know, it's tempting to just forget about it. You've had two or three no's in a row. Uh, one of my sort of almost favorite experiences is having a client with a pet, say, five, six-year-old, what I call a rabies-only client, you know, doing it for the letter of the law, perhaps, and educating them and, and building them up. And, you do have to believe in it. If you don't believe in it, you may be in the wrong profession, you know. But uh, if look, if you think CIV is not appropriate for that pet, don't don't push the flu shot. But 
you know, and then, and so you've got to sort of have your moral compass. I actually don't perform dentistries, but I recommend a lot of them and uh, because I believe in it. There's a strong link to systemic health. Find the things you believe in, you know, preferably most of your profession, but certainly important preventative and wellness care and, and channel that. Uh, think about obesity and overweight pets. They're, I mean, it's an epidemic and carry the metabolic, carry the over-the-counter products. And, uh, you know, even if they don't stick with purchases from you, it's, it's about getting that pet healthier and showing people that you care, you know. So I'll take that time to talk about weight and to talk about dentals, even though for me there's little revenue coming out of it, but it is about caring for the pet and building rapport and hopefully demonstrating that to the client. Yeah, I, I think the takeaway, if I would sum it up, is don't wuss out on doing what's right. Just because other people have told you no and it feels safe and comfortable to just skip over it or maybe not dive into that area that you may get rejected. Just, you know, say, this is how I do things and continue to do it. And long-term, I think you'll see a lot of results from it. So again, thank you for, for sharing that. Wanted to talk about wellness plans, discounted exams, and how you've seen clients interact with those offerings. There was some interesting dialogue we had around it, just kind of a springboard for our next conversation. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I am at a VCA clinic and they're uh, rolling out nationwide. have been doing it for many years in some areas and not so long in others. They're uh, care club. Uh, interesting model, prepaid uh, wellness plan, not insurance. So, you always have to get that out of the way, but uh, it is unlimited exams. Uh, all required vaccines are recommended for that age uh, or life stage of PET. And then options for younger pets to uh, add in a spay or neuter, for older pets to add in a dental. And uh, we're seeing pretty good traction. We came out of the gates quite strong at our clinic about a year ago when we started. And I think what they offer an opportunity for clients who are financially constrained, but who really do want the best for their pet. I see these as, um, you know, what might historically have been mid-tier to lower quartile spenders simply for due to limitations, which we all have, actually stepping up a, a quartile or so. And because the model is 12 months interest-free, you know the payments. It's important to be clear with them that accidents, injuries, and illnesses will not be covered apart from the exam. Uh, but the plans, the older adult plans and seniors include blood work and, and urinalysis, fecal tests. Um, so I think, I think it's great. It's something the industry has been doing more and more. I think communicating what's included and what's not, knowing how to sell it. And it's funny, I find myself moving more of the puppy and senior products than the adults, in part because it's kind of a no-brainer. And when it's a no-brainer, it's easy to sell. There's a sort of close to 20% discount on the full plan. You've got an eight-week-old puppy. You're going to need four or five visits for shots. You're going to need the spay and neuter. You're going to need a couple of fecals. You know, it's it's an easy sell, and that speaks to our prior point about selling what you believe in. You know, yeah, no, it's still a good plan, but many of those pets, only, you know, because of three-year vaccines, they may only need one or two shots at that visit. And they may not have historically been doing annual wellness blood work, so the value is a little harder for them to see, and admittedly, perhaps for me to buy into. But something I plan to work on in the new year. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm fairly passionate about it. I do worry. I think some uh, models obsess about their plans, uh, unnamed uh, players in the industry. And I think, I think that's a problem, you know, when staff are berated about the numbers that are enrolled, when, when promotional opportunities and pay are linked very heavily to it. 
I think you just get into a model and, and clients perceive that they, they perceive that I'm being sold this, that, and look, some want it and some happily buy into it and love it. And that's fine. And, and these models, some of them are thriving. I think VCA, at least in my experience, is doing it right by, you know, rolling it out slowly, incentivizing doctors and, in fact, the whole staff uh, to, to execute on these plans, but not, at least at the moment, that I'm seeing being too dogmatic about numbers, you know, recommending it. But the main thing is the value speaks for itself. And, and again, we'll sell something we believe in. So offer a plan that works for your associate veterinarians and your technicians, and they'll sell it for you all day long. As we kind of transition to the end of our, our time together, um, again, so appreciative of the information shared. What has you excited as we you know, turn the calendar to the, the new year, a new decade? What do you look out and see? So whether it's from your personal situation, veterinary medicine in general. So I think, uh, you know, you, you know me pretty well by now. And, and for me, it's, it's the power of analytics. We're starting to see some of it. Uh, there are some, uh, you know, work within Mars, uh, corporation and others to pull data so uh, i think there's you know pet lifestyle data there is um, you know as we mentioned earlier operational clinic level data you know it's something I'm, I'm passionate about just from my unique training and experience and something i feel veterinary medicine has lagged on you know quite a bit compared to not just the facebook's and amazon's of the world but in fact just about every other industry and business has been using data more than we have for quite some time. So, so that on the professional level, personally, as you know, I'm a dad of two young kids. I'm, I'm excited to see them continue to grow and thrive and learn. And uh, so working towards that work-life balance that can allow me to, uh, to succeed in both arenas of life that are so important to me. Absolutely. And you talked about succeeding in success. The podcast is rightly, you know, talking about success in a lot of different areas would you define, you know, success personally and professionally any differently or is it, you know, kind of summed up in the, the conversation you just had talking about, you know, as your, your children get older and then seeing them succeed and supporting them? Yeah, I think, I think on that side, you know, being a good husband and father and on the other side, being the best clinician I can be, you know, recognizing my limitations. I'm not a great surgeon or, or veterinary dentist. I, I have chosen to leave most of that to my colleagues. Uh, I do think of myself as a good general practicing clinician and, and a specialist so trying to you know keep that moral compass do what's right you know never do more you know never do more than you have to but always do what you should always offer what you should and i have to hold myself to that every single day you know some clients come in and you just try very hard not to judge them and and let them make an informed educated decision and and like you said be willing to take some of those knockbacks it's part of the job it's part of life Try and cherish the successes, cherish the wins, and uh, you know, share them with the team. Uh, report back. Your assistants want to know what happened to that case you saw last week. Follow up with them. Watch them grow. Help them uh, with their careers and professions, and uh, you know, live a live a full life. I love it. So, last question: With those listening that are interested in either connecting with you, talking more about the things that that you have kind of percolating and statistics and just your general thoughts around veterinary care. What's the best way to either follow along, get a hold of you? Where would you direct them? So I'd say for right now, the best bet's still LinkedIn. I've got a number of uh, articles that are either in draft form or uh, mental preparation. Uh, for now, that's sort of my main avenue. I may be looking to add a website in the not too distant future. Um, but certainly uh, look me up, Simon Starkey uh, on LinkedIn. There are not too many of us, at least not veterinarians. 
And, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing you there. I wish you all the success with your business. It's been great to, uh, to watch you kind of grow. I feel like we're, we're good friends. We've only spoken a handful of times, but uh, I can see you're passionate about our industry. And uh, it's great to see a young, young player sort of uh, dedicating his career in part to us and in part to our uh, brethren, clinicians, the dentists. So I wish you all the best and uh, look forward to seeing you go on to great success in 2020. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I will, uh, I'll link to your LinkedIn profile. That way it makes it easy to find you as well. But thank you so much for joining me, sharing your information. And yeah, look forward to many more conversations that we have moving into the next decade. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. Isaiah is the founder of ID Financial Planning and Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor in the state of Indiana. The biggest compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is a platform that is predominantly how people listen to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us an honest review and rating. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information and insights and the ability to have your voice heard, please consider joining the private podcast Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll down to the about your host and click on the Facebook icon. Then I can approve you, let you into the group, and would love to hear from you there. Thanks for listening, and I'll be talking again to you soon.